This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, and welcome back to the JCMS podcast. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Calgary. On this episode, we're going to speak with the author of another article that I selected for CMA credit in our May-June 2019 issue of the journal. I chose the article, The Use of Janus Kinase Inhibitors in Vitiligo, a review of the literature, because I thought it was very clinically relevant to our world today. And the science is advancing so fast that it's good to review what we've done, why we did it, and then to look into the future. The article was authored by Nicole Relke and Dr. Melinda Gooderham. I'm very happy that Dr. Gooderham is with me now to speak about her research. Melinda, tell me what led you and your co-authors to uh, to review the literature about this subject. Well, I've had an interest um, just in JAK inhibition in general uh, for the past couple of years since we've been doing some clinical trials with some harder to treat conditions such as alopecia areata, um, atopic dermatitis. We also did uh, JAK inhibitor studies for psoriasis. And I knew that there were uh, vitiligo studies on the horizon. And I really wanted to kind of put it together. What was already in the literature? What did we already know about how well JAK inhibitors are working for vitiligo? So um, Nicole was uh, working with me in my clinic. And I said, hey, let's put this together and see where the where the scene is at. Well, this uh, vitiligo, you know, when we started practice, we had nothing. Yeah. Really, virtually nothing. We had PUVA that got taken away. And then we used some steroids and then some topical calcineurin inhibitors. And we're back using some light. So when you reviewed vitiligo, this is really exciting stuff nowadays. And it looks like we're going to get the keratinocyte back as our cell. Yeah, because it seems to be the prime mover in this is what is what I can gather at any rate from the uh, from the science has been presented so far. How does Jack inhibition work in this disease? Well, one of the thing I mean, it's interesting as well, because when I was training, we were learning the Th1 pathway as implicated in psoriasis pathogenesis. And it wasn't until later that we learned um, that it was the Th17 pathway that was playing a larger role. So being more comfortable with the Th1 pathway, it uh, became evident that there was a Th1 type of signature in vitiligo patients with interferon gamma, kind of as the, the driver of, of this condition. So knowing how JAK inhibitors work in, in different immune-mediated diseases, um, people started using JAK inhibitors for their patients with vitiligo, having seen them work in other conditions that are related, such as alopecia areata. And so a few reports coming out in the literature were showing some benefit. And I think this is what uh, started the the move towards studying this in a more formal uh, setting. So like most things, I guess it's clinical serendipity and working back to work out the science. Yep. Um, I saw um, uh, a presentation at the American Academy on, on uh, vitiligo and JAK inhibitors, and it looks like not only do you have to remove the immunological event, 
but you also have to return to the use of UVB light in order to repigment, which I thought was fascinating. Right. So um, you can prevent progression of the condition by blocking the immune um, response, but you can't repigment, which is one of the main features of this condition that we're trying to repigment these patients. So you need, it's combination therapy. There was a, a Cochrane review done in 2015, and you really need combination therapy in this condition. And, and, and these studies that are being done with JAK inhibitors is combining this with light because you need to stimulate uh, the, the melanocyte stem cells to kind of repopulate uh, the, the epidermis. So, you know, if I think back to our use of PUVA, which was relatively successful mm-hmm. in, in repigmentation, I wonder if it's the T-cell um, death related to the PUVA plus the repigmentation. I wonder if we were really very far ahead of our time yeah. and didn't really know it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, so in your clinic now, um, we, of course, we don't have JAK inhibitors um, really to use unless you know, people have a considerable amount of money to pay for them or enter in a research trial. Mm-hmm. How do you manage your vitiligo patients today? Currently, I am using a combination of intermittent uh, topical steroid uh, therapy, plus I use a lot of topical calcineurin inhibitors more on face and uh, more sensitive areas like the genital area. But I think almost all of my um, vitiligo patients have narrow band UVB therapy. And I, and I tell them right up front, you're going to need to do this for at least a year. Um, before we start to see anything. And once it starts to work, you're going to keep doing it. So most of my vitiligo patients have been coming for years. Yes. And I have a full practice of them as well. And it's very frustrating for them. But when they start to see those little islands occur, it, yeah. it kind of becomes uh, very rapid in, in the fill-in pattern. So, you know, it, it, it does speak to the fact that this is um, a follicular process. And perhaps that's where these resident memory T cells, maybe there's more of them in there. And they, they hang out in the, in the uh, hair follicle yeah. versus... Yeah, yeah it's... I, I, I wish I'd have, as you mentioned, it's not easy to access uh, JAK inhibitors unless it's out, uh, inside a clinical trial or for an, um, an indication already approved. So I haven't been able to give uh, JAK inhibitors to any of my patients with vitiligo at this point, but I do plan on being involved in some vitiligo and JAK inhibitor trials in the near future. So I'm pretty excited to see that just as we were excited to see hair growing in alopecia areata patients on JAK inhibitors and see the the rapid response of atopic dermatitis patients responding with JAK inhibition. So it's a pretty fascinating pathway. And um, I, I think these, this population of vitiligo patients who really had um, very few options, it's, it's, it's a great future for them. In your review of the literature, um, is before we get to, to, to the JAK inhibitors, was there anything, because you go through each of the current modalities of, uh, available to us, was there anything that came out of that review that, that changed how you use conventional therapy? Not really. Um, I think it more confirmed what I was already doing. So that was nice to say, okay, I don't, 
was reassuring that I didn't need to change, that I wasn't doing something that wasn't sort of up to date. Um, I do encourage patients a bit more to stick to the the narrow band um, regimen. Um, but for topical therapy, that hasn't really changed. Now, you know, the um, use of systemic steroids has always been frightening to me in this condition. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you that I can honestly tell when someone has stopped progressing so that I can stop their steroids. I think that's, a, I find that a very hard clinical point to, to define. Um, so I've never really used systemic steroids in this condition. No. I've always been taught that if you're going to put somebody in systemic steroids, be prepared to treat them for the length of the illness. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I, I will use potent. Or, I will I will use potent topical steroids, but I haven't yeah. used systemic steroids for this condition. I'm again weighing the the risks and the benefits, and and this condition does have a significant impact on quality of life. But I think some of the the side effects that come along with chronic steroid use also affect the quality of life. So I don't feel the the benefit outweighs the risk in most in most of my patients. The, I've all and I've been reading. I read with envy these people that do the split thickness graphs mm-hmm. and i think oh i should really learn how to do that because it it sounds like it's really quite um successful but thinking back over this pathophysiological thing that we're learning with with jack inhibition i'm not so certain that i should be so envious any longer yeah and i think it's also in the landscape of your healthcare system and what is what is uh, available to our patients. And, you know, there are other countries with different structured systems that, that might support that type of therapy, but it's, it's not in our Canadian system, unfortunately. In, so now you're, you're, you're really comfortable in the jack inhibition, psoriasis, alopecia areata you've worked with uh, in, in, in your research program. What do I uh, fear with respect to the use of jack inhibition, they can't be, they can't be without some issues, right? And I think a lot of it uh, depends on how broad the jack inhibition is of the agent that you're using. So there are the the earlier sort of non-selective uh, jack inhibitors, the first ones like tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib that have a broader inhibition. And what we're going towards is more selective JAK inhibition as we learn which of the JAK um, tyrosine kinases are most important for which condition. Um, The more selective you can get, the fewer sort of off-target effects you have to worry about. But with with the broad JAK inhibitors that we have most experience with, probably the main concern is infection because we are there is some immunosuppression happening here. So infection, number one. And number two, there have been some uh, thromboembolic events, which seems to be a class effect with the broad uh, JAK inhibitors. But the one thing you have to keep in mind is the populations that have been studied to date. So we have the rheumatoid arthritis population um, has probably the largest program so far with the JAK inhibitors. And these patients are already at increased risk of infection with some of the other agents. They're rarely on monotherapy. And they also have an increased risk of, of thromboembolism. So it's hard to tease out some of those risks when you are using the medications in a different population with 
in the case of vitiligo and alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis are actually younger. They have fewer comorbidities and fewer concomitant medications. Have you in serendipity seen um, anyone treat their vitiligo while on tofacitinib? I have not. Because in your alopecia areata crowd, there must be you know the chance yeah. of at least finding uh, um, vitiligo. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen it yet. I'm like I'm excited to to be involved in the trials so that you know mm-hmm. that's the the thrill of doing research when you're when you see things working for the first time um, in patients who've been really waiting for new treatments. So I'm looking forward to it. Is there a problem uh, either compounding jack inhibitors? in a cream or um, getting them uh, to uh, be uh, absorbed to target? I mean, they are small molecules. Uh, They can be um, absorbed through the skin. That's one of the benefits of a small molecule compared to biologic agents. So we have done studies um, previously with tofacitinib uh, compounded into uh, an ointment, which was quite effective for for atopic dermatitis. I just think you need to be careful of who's doing the compounding, what how they're doing it, what they're using. Um, and also one other limiting factor is the cost of the, the agent that, that you're using. So uh, some of these medications can be costly if you're then taking it and compounding it and having, the, having to pay the pharmacy fee. So with the the number of studies that are also being done on topical jack inhibitors i think moving forward we won't have to compound them they will be commercially available to us so you think in the next 5 years yeah we'll be able to liberate these patients from this huge and, and really significant psychosocial burden of vitiligo yeah i think probably 5 years is a good um a good time frame for you know, maybe the first, second agents coming to market just from the, the where the studies are at currently. Um, moving forward from that, I think though, as we've seen with psoriasis and as we're seeing with atopic dermatitis, once we sort of figure things out, everything starts to happen really quickly. So we'll start out with one agent and then we'll soon have a number of options. And I and I do think it's really interesting, the, psych, the psychosocial impact, which can be so profound for some some people, especially in the cultures um, that they're part of or the countries that they live in, and there can be quite significant. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have some people who it does not affect them at all. They embrace it. It makes them who they are. So, you know, that was one of the things we talk about in the papers uh, is that when you have a patient, you know, do a DLQI because you don't know where they sit on that spectrum, whether they are, I mean, presumably if they're visiting you for the for that concern, they're 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 affected by it, and those patients that aren't affected by it aren't seeking medical attention. But you know, just keeping in mind how that condition is affecting that person. Yeah, I can't Im- imagine, and and I grew up in the era where we would look at monobenzyl ether of hydroquinone when I was working with uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick. We would depigment people. Yeah. But as you pointed out, you couldn't change their cultural behavior or, in essence, you couldn't change their facial features. So we had a lot of social workers, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, evaluations before ever considering this because although people wanted 
to be one color, it wasn't always to their cultural advantage right. to change from, say, black or brown to white. Yeah. Um, and, and so they had to understand that they, this wasn't going to make them normal. Um, and uh, he would be smiling, I'm sure, if he saw how far along we can get. And now we can actually offer these people significant repigmentation. Um, yeah. So the other thing is, in you know, in um, we used to use ultraviolet light outdoors. And in India, they still chew these seeds uh, to get sorolin um, out to repigment. That that still works very well. And maybe we'll get our puva machines uh, dusted off and, yeah. and back to work uh, it, as a combination therapy with the JAK inhibitors. What's, what's interesting when you're talking about the depigmenting, one of the cases uh, that's reported in the in the review is repigmentation with light and uh, jack inhibitor in areas that were depigmented with phenol in, you know, the attempt to depigment all the skin, it's still repigmented with a jack inhibitor and light therapy. So fascinating. So one might hypothesize that you, that you can really um, get these stem cell melanocytes repigmented as long as you can get rid of the immunological event. Eh? Yeah. All right. Well, um, Thank you. That was enlightening. Is from your from your review, anything else you want to leave us with? Anything else you discovered? I, I think um, you know it was nice again for you know going back a few years and just reviewing like how does a woods lamp work? Uh, those <laughs> sorts of things we had to go look up because you just take them for granted after so many years of practicing. So it was it was fun to do this review. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I really look forward to to moving forward in this field and finding some new treatments for these patients. And I would just, I guess, what I would leave to any of the listeners is if you're at the AAD or any other meeting, uh, try to go to one of these talks on vitiligo and jack, inhibitor, uh, jack inhibitors. It's quite an interesting uh, field. Well, join the wave, right? Because the, the article, although, you know, it's in our uh, May-June 2019 issue, it's rapidly... Um, leading itself into its next article. The next article will be within the year with all the new things yep. that are happening. We're really on the brink of some marvelous sort of discoveries here. So thanks again to the mice uh, yes. in helping us sort all this <laughs> uh, stuff out. Right? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you again for, for joining us. I really appreciated uh, you taking uh, the time to enlighten us uh, on where we stand with respect to vitiligo. Well, thanks, Kirk, and thanks for selecting this uh, this review article to be discussed. Dr. Gooderham is a dermatologist in Peterborough, Ontario, who has not only a very large clinical practice, but a large clinical trial practice as well. She's the author of an article that appeared in our May-June uh, 2019 issue of the journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, entitled The Use of Janus Kinase Inhibitors in Vitiligo, a Review of the Literature. This article was very pertinent in that it reviewed our current knowledge in the management of vitiligo and really took us a step into the future and outlined to us where we're going over the next five to 10 years. Well, that's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.